right. Kids can now be dismissed. Yeah, they are excited. I love it. I love how excited they are. You'll have to excuse me today for uh, having a lack of a voice. This weekend, uh, my family was able to um, attend the uh, ACC fencing championships, and uh, two of our own, Stephanie and Reagan, killed it. Um, uh, Stephanie actually won the uh, the gold medal uh, for her weapon, so she was overall best. Um, and so, yes. When, uh, when she comes, I know she's planning on coming tonight, let's make sure that when she comes we embarrass her um, and give her another round of applause when she gets here. Uh, so, this evening uh, we are back in the book of First John, so you can go ahead and turn there, and today we'll be uh, looking at the uh, middle portion of chapter 2. Most of you have probably never heard of a British man named Arthur Rostron. Rostron, I'm not even sure how to say his name, Rostron. Similarly, you've probably never heard of the ship that he was the captain of, the RMS Carpathia. But you almost certainly know about the event that made this man and this ship famous, uh, to most people except for us, probably. Um, on April the 12th, 1912, the Carpathia set sail from New York City on its way to the Med- Mediterranean port of Trieste. There, it would drop off about 150 elderly American passengers who would be uh, vacationing. And it would also be picking up a number of Hungarian travelers who would be emigrating into the United States. Captain Rostron had only been the captain of the RMS Carpathia at this point for three months. Now, just after midnight, only a few days into their voyage, Harold Cottam was on the ship getting ready for bed. Harold Cottam was the Carpathia's wireless communications specialist. He was 15 minutes past his normal time of getting off work. And as he removed his shoes, he still, for some reason, had his headphones uh, on his head. Had he taken them off like normal, had he gotten off work at the normal time, he would not have heard a frantic SOS ringing in his headphones. The SOS was coming from a ship that was, at that point, 58 miles away. And I'm sure you can guess the name of that ship sending out this SOS in April of 1912. The Titanic, correct. Shortly before sending out that SOS, the Titanic had been struck by an iceberg, putting all of the 2,200 people on board in grave danger. And so Harold Cottam immediately woke up the captain, Captain Rostron, without Hesitation, Captain Rostron diverted the Carpathia from its course uh, to the Mediterranean to head for the Titanic. Now, the maximum speed on this particular ship was 14 knots. And sitting between the Carpathia and the Titanic was a veritable minefield of icebergs. But that didn't stop Captain Rostron. He instructed the chief engineer on the ship to turn off all of the heating systems, including uh, the, the heaters in the rooms and heaters for water, and divert those back to the engine so that the maximum amount of steam could be used uh, to power the engines. He then went and told the crew to wake up every available stoker, Uh, Now, of course, back in those days, the the engines were coal-driven, and so a stoker's job was to shovel coal into the furnace. And so they had shifts, and and he woke up all the people that were working there, had every available stoker in the engine room shoveling coal into the furnace. So with every available stoker and with all of the engine's power diverted to, um, I'm sorry, all of the ship's power diverted to the engine's, The Carpathia was able to exceed its maximum speed of 14 knots and reach 17 knots. As they barreled toward their destination, 
Captain Rostron had the crew preparing the ship for an influx of passengers. So they readied rescue boats. They stationed doctors in uh, these uh, quickly fashioned triage units. They gathered up blankets and extra clothing. They began to prepare hot food and tea and coffee. A little bit over three hours later, they arrived at the Titanic's position. And somehow, during this breakneck speed journey, they had managed to dodge every single one of the icebergs in their path. The navigators, by the way, could only see the icebergs by the light of the stars. So barely being able to see, uh, they still made it. Much later on, Captain Rostrum was asked how this was possible. And he said this, A hand other than mine was on the wheel that night. Because of his quick and decisive action, 705 passengers from the Titanic were saved. Had he and his crew not responded as quickly and as efficiently as they did, every single person on the Titanic would have died that night. Over the course of four hours, they pulled passengers from lifeboats. They pulled passengers straight from the water. I can only assume they probably pulled a few girls from floating doors, which they'd pushed their boyfriends off of, even though there's room. Until 8.30 a.m., when uh, Charles Lytoller, the last remaining survivor, was pulled out of the water. After they spent some additional time unsuccessfully searching for uh, additional survivors, Captain Rostron then guided the ship back to New York City. A week later, the Carpathia arrived there in port to much fanfare swarmed by reporters. And Rostron would go on to receive the Congressional Medal of Honor and a number of other uh, honors, including being named the Admiral over the entire fleet uh, of ships. Now, for the purpose of today's sermon... I'd like you to begin to imagine for just a moment that certain people in this story had the ability to tell the future. That before any of the events events took place, some of the people involved knew, imagine that some of them knew what was going to happen. Imagine that Captain Rostron and his crew knew on April 15th, I'm sorry, on April 14th, the night before the crash, that the Titanic would be struck by an iceberg. And I'd also like you to imagine for a moment that you lived in 1912 and were invited to be a passenger on board the Titanic. But before you went aboard, you also knew about its impending fate. As you begin to picture those things, let's turn to our passage for the evening. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. And uh, the words will be behind me on the screen. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So if you're taking notes, we'll jump right in to point number one. The world is a sinking ship that we have fallen in love with. In these three verses, John implores his audience to realize and understand a number of things. And among those things that he implores us to understand is this truth, that the world is passing away. The world is dying. It is sinking. Now, of course, it's important for us to understand what exactly he means when he uses the term the world. Uh, In his gospel, in the gospel of John, John records Jesus saying, For God so loved the world... That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not have everlasting life. Yet here, he tells his readers, do not love the world. So what's the difference? 
In one sense, we have God so loving the world, and then in another sense, we are told not to love the world. The difference here, of course, is context. In John 3.16, obviously the context is referring to people, that God gave his son to save the people on earth. So in that sense, the world means the world, the people. But here, the context obviously refers to a system, a way of doing things. So God so loved the people of the world, but he commands us not to love the fallen and broken culture in which people inhabit. And then he tells us very clearly why we are not to love the world. In verse 17, he says, The world, with its systems, with its way of doing things, with its desires, is passing away. God says, Abandon ship. It is going down. So, further clarifying what John means when he says the world, he says the things in the world. He says in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now we need to realize here that he's not necessarily referring to bad things. He he doesn't use a negative term here. We're going to get to, in just a moment, some bad things, but right here, he just says the things in this world, the bad things that will come, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, that's obviously not good stuff, but first he says, do not love the things in the world. That term in and of itself is a little bit vague. It's a little bit general, and he uses a vague and general term on purpose because that can literally mean anything. Anything that is in the world, including good things, including things that God has given us, including blessings. See, one of the the central messages of Scripture is that we as people are very, very skilled idol makers. We are really, really good at making false gods. We can make idols out of literally anything. And most of us, I assume, probably aren't bowing down to actual statues, which is the picture that we get in mind when we think of the word idols, but we can make an idol out of a relationship, a boyfriend or a girlfriend. We can make an idol out of a job or out of a sport, a status or position in society, the opinion of others, money certainly can be an idol. Fill in the blank. There are so many things that can fit there as idols. We can take absolutely anything and ascribe to it a level of supreme value and try to derive meaning from it that we're only meant to get from God himself. And we do this even with very good things. But when we turn a good thing into a God thing, It is at that point that we've begun to love the things of the world. We're not told to avoid having things. What we are told is to make sure that those things don't have us. Owning something is not bad. But what is bad is when something owns you. And it owns you when you love it. The word that is used here in our passage for love is the Greek word agape. As you all, I'm sure, are aware, in the Greek language there are several words for love. In English, we just have one, love. And so it can be a little bit confusing because you can love a person and love a job and love pizza all at the same time. But these are different senses of the word love. And so in the Greek, uh, there are a number of different words. The highest and the most dedicated among those is the word agape. And that is the word that is used here when he commands us, do not love the world or the things in this world. He says, do not agape these things. And what that word is referring to is a self-sacrificial, devoted, direction-defining Love. When 
you love something or someone in this way, when you agape something or someone, you pursue it. You make sacrifices for it. You, you put it first. You forsake everything else for it. You give it your heart. And your heart was only meant to be given to one person, the Lord. As he moves on, John also mentions some other things about the world. So first he speaks in general terms. He says things of the world. Then he begins to get more specific. And this time we can be pretty certain that he's not talking about good things. He says in, uh, in verse 16, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Desires of the flesh, desires of the eyes, the pride of life. Um, some of you may have a translation that uses a term that I prefer uh, by saying the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So what does John mean with these terms? Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. Um, there was a scholar named Thomas Constable who I think uh, sums it up pretty well for us. He says that the lust of the flesh is the desire to do something apart from the will of God. The lust of the eyes is the desire to have something apart from God. And the pride of life is the desire to be something apart from the will of God. So, uh, the first, the, the lust of the flesh, appeals mainly to the body. The second appeals mainly to the soul. And the third, mainly to the spirit. So perhaps the most common manifestation in the world today in our context of lust of the flesh would be sexual sin, hedonism, idolizing pleasure. Then uh, probably uh, understanding the most common manifestation of lust of the eyes would be materialism, excessive buying, idolizing possessions. And perhaps the most common manifestation of the pride of life is control, egoism, idolizing power. And so these three things can be summed up with three words, consumption, possession, and position. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life would be consumption, possession, and position. The lust of the flesh is the desire to consume. When we simplify sexual sin, we find that sexual sin turns other people into objects for consumption. In those moments, we do not see other people as eternally valuable, image of God-bearing, worthy of respect and honor as a person. We view them only as body parts that are meant to gratify the desire of our flesh. So we take an individual, and we make them just the sum of parts, body parts that we can use for whatever we want. The lust of the eyes is the desire to have whatever we lay our eyes upon. I see something, and in my greed, I want to make it mine. And again, materialism is the easiest way of putting this. It's greed. It's turning trinkets into treasures. This is when we see something and we have this all-consuming desire to have it and we'll do whatever it takes to get it and we believe that we will be happy when we finally do obtain it. And then the pride of life is the desire to be elevated above others. Essentially, it is the desire to have the worship of others. It is, in a sense, to worship yourself. This term in the Greek, the, the pride of life, is directly translated as the pretension of human life. The pretension of human life. And, and this is what happens when we make an idol out of status, an idol out of position, an idol out of achievements, when we care most about what others think about us, when we start acting entitled when we feel like we deserve to be handed whatever we want, when we start ranking people in our minds in terms of importance and value and worth, and of course, I am always at the top, 
of that pile. I matter more than anyone else. So all of this is what John is referring to when he talks about the world. There are good things and there are also bad things. But here, again, is the unavoidable truth when we talk about the world. Verse 17 uh, in the first part says, The world is passing away along with all of its desires. John paints a very clear picture of what is happening in the world, just like he has in the rest of his letters so far. He leaves no room for misinterpretation, no room for confusion. He says very clearly, the world is a sinking ship. The world is the Titanic post-iceberg. It is doomed, and there is no hope. The second law of thermodynamics tells us very clearly that disorder is only increasing. As more time goes on, the world gets worse and worse. The boat is taking on water. This all started with Adam and Eve when they saw this forbidden fruit and they took it for themselves, in essence taking the wheel away from the captain, and it resulted in the ship slamming straight into an iceberg. Into the hull of humanity, it was stabbed and ripped apart. And ever since that moment, the fate of the ship has been sealed. And this tells us that God is not concerned with giving mankind a comfortable life on earth. His mission is not to make our here and now as good as it possibly can be. God is on a rescue mission There will be a renewed creation for us to enjoy later on. But for now, we got to grab a hold of the life preserver that he is throwing us. But herein lies the problem for us. As Christians, we know full well that the world is sinking. We, We know the fate of the world. But man, it is so easy to fall in love with it. Even though we know exactly where the ship is heading, even though we can see the tip of that boat pointing down toward the bottom of the ocean, it's not a surprise, even knowing that, it is still so easy to fall in love with the things of the world. Like I said at the beginning, there are some scenarios that we imagine. So, imagine it's 1912. And you are given a tour of the most beautiful cruise ship you have ever seen. More beautiful, more luxurious than anything you could have even possibly imagined. The top amenities available in the day. Grand, luxurious rooms. Enormous, grand halls and giant marble staircases. Now, again, it's 1912, so we're not going to have big screen TVs or anything like that, but... It's got a gym and a pool, and that is amazing. Even though now our cruise ships have like 28 pools, the fact that this one had a pool would have blown the mind. So imagine you're shown this incredible boat with all of its incredible amenities. It has five-star restaurants. It has theater halls with incredible live entertainment. It's like something out of a dream. And then imagine that you're offered an all-expenses-paid trip. And included in this all-expenses-paid trip is the top-level meal ticket, giving you access to every single meal or drink on the boat. Imagine you're given the nicest, largest suite on the ship, the, the biggest room, the nicest room, full access to every single available activity. And then you're told, we'll even pay your salary at work while you're on the cruise, so you won't even have to take PTO. Everything will be paid for while you're taking this cruise. Wouldn't that sound like the deal of the century? But then, imagine you're told, listen, there's just one catch. Just one catch. Here's the thing, at some unknown point during this voyage, and we don't know when, could happen at any moment, at some point during the trip, the boat is going to hit an iceberg, 
and it's going to split in half, and almost everyone on board is going to die. Do you still want to take the trip? (laughs) Of course, there wouldn't be a single one of us that would sign up for that. We would say, absolutely not. And in addition to that, we're going to do whatever it possibly takes to make sure that nobody else gets on this boat. That nobody else is dumb enough to take this deal because they're probably going to die too. That is an illustration of the world. Again, not the world, the people. The world broke in reality. And the ship is sinking. And most people are blissfully unaware trying to get the most enjoyment possible out of the ship's activities, loving all the things that the ship offers, enraptured by the shining lights and the live shows and the top-notch entertainment, having no idea that any moment could be their last. But we do know. So how crazy is it that we fall in love with this sinking ship. So, what are we to do? What steps are we to take? Well, John tells us how to avoid this at the beginning of verse 15, and it all has to do with what we love. Verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So, here's point number two. Love is a decision of the will, not a feeling of the heart. Love is a decision of the will, not a feeling of the heart. So, John tells us there very clearly in verse 15, do not love the world. Now, on the surface, that seems kind of silly, right? Seems like kind of a dumb thing to say. After all, have you ever said to someone, don't love that? Or if they're talking about a person that they love, have you ever said to them, don't love them? It seems like something we would never say because aren't we told, don't we believe that you can't help what you love? That love just happens. We have been led to believe that the heart wants what it wants, that feelings come and go. All we can do is follow them. And so if you say to someone, don't love that, or don't love him, or don't love her, they're going to go, what do you mean don't love that? I can't help it. I love them. I love it. Or I don't love it. The converse is true. If, if you tell someone, you need to just love this, the average person is going to look at you and be like, You can't just flip a switch and love something or turn off the switch and not love something. How is this possible? Well, I said uh, a, a couple of weeks ago, decisions shape desires. Decisions shape desires. The more consistently you decide something, the more you will be wired to desire it. Uh, When I was mentioning that, I used the example of water, that growing up, water is not something I ever drank um, on purpose, (laughs) if I had the option. I would always choose something that had flavor, tea, soda, lemonade, something, anything but water, because water is tasteless. Water is boring. So, if you would have asked me, do you love water, I would say, absolutely not, I don't love water. But then slowly but surely, I began to drink more water. And the more water I began to drink every day, the more other things got pushed out. The more I would taste a soda and think to myself, oh my God, this is so sweet. I never noticed how sweet this was until it's something I hardly ever drank. And the more I did this, when I got thirsty, what I wanted more than anything else is water. Till now, water is basically the only thing I ever drink. Decisions, consistent decisions, shape desires. Now that's not to say that the opposite won't ever be tempting. Of of course it will be. But you will begin to want the things that you pursue. If you pursue something consistently enough, you'll begin to want it. So when John tells us, do not love the world, he's not talking about flip a switch and it's done. 
He talks about committing ourselves to a process, giving ourselves over to a series of decisions. Remember, we discussed earlier that the word for love here is agape. That is self-sacrificial, devoted, direction-defining love. And so again, when we decide to love someone like this, we pursue them. We make sacrifices for them. We put it first. We forsake all others. In this sense, it's not about feelings. It's not about emotions. It's about decisions. Feelings will come later. Feelings will come later. But first, we make decisions. John even uh, hints at this in the way that he words his instructions to us. It's interesting that when he begins this section, he doesn't say, do not do the things of the world, which would make sense for him to say. There's all this bad stuff. Don't do this bad stuff. Here's a list of things that you ought not do. But that's not what he does. He doesn't say, do not do the things in the world. He doesn't say, do not commit the sins of the world. He says, do not love the world. Do not set your affection on it. Don't give your heart to it. And that is a very important distinction. Because the other way around would be to put the cart before the horse. If you set just a list of rules, you are bound to fail. It is not going to work. No matter what kind of restrictions you put on yourself, no matter how disciplined you are, the thing is, you will always pursue what you love. Period. You will always pursue what you love. Your heart will long for what you desire. There's always this affection in your heart drawing you toward whatever holds your heart. So, if your heart is held by the world, it doesn't matter what kind of Christian-y things you put in place or spiritual habits you put in your life. It doesn't matter how much you go to church or read your Bible or pray. It doesn't matter what kind of system you put in place. If the world has your heart, it will be consistently drawn toward the world. Doesn't matter if you decide to be loving, kind, nice, moral. If the world has your heart, you will pursue it. Uh, a perfect example of this would be Lot's wife in the book of Genesis, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember in that story, Lot and his family are rescued by God. Two angels show up uh, to the city of Sodom. They rescue his family. Uh, they tell him that there is judgment coming. God is going to rain down fire on this city and destroy everyone and anything that is here. So they're told, get out of the city. Run as fast as you can. There's another city several miles away. Run to that city and you will be safe. And God commands Lot and his family through the angels, run as fast as you can and don't look back. If you look back, you will be swept away. And what happens? As the crew is running out of the city and they're running towards a place of safety, Lot's wife turns around. She looks. And what happens? She becomes a pillar of salt. Even as she's in the middle of being rescued, even as she's given salvation, she looks back. Why does she look back? Because Sodom held her heart. Her affections were in that city that she was supposed to be leaving, not in the future that God was offering. Her affections were not with Yahweh. Her affections drew her backward. And so God said, Look, I'm not going to force you to love me. <laughs> if you love the world, you can have the world. But that means you're going down with the ship. It is entirely up to you. You have to decide. And so I think one of the things that we need to do is we need to change the way that we pray. It's fine to ask God to give you the strength to fight temptation. That, that's a good prayer to pray. 
It's fine to ask God to help you to be a good servant, to give you the strength to be faithful to him. That's, that's all fine and good. We should pray those things. But it is even more important that we ask God to give us love for him, that he would give us a heart to pursue him, that he would help us to set our affections upon him, that he would draw us into his heart that we might experience his love and that we might reciprocate his love. And faithfulness will flow out from that love. Obedience will come from affection, not from rules, not from regulations. Here's something else that we have to understand. We can't love God and the world at the same time. So point number three, love cannot be divided. You cannot love both God and the world. Uh, Notice what it tells us in the second half of verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. John explains very clearly that if someone loves the world, they cannot also love the Father. They are diametrically opposed. You cannot love opposing things at the same time. It would be like saying you're a Notre Dame fan and a USC fan at the same time. That doesn't make any sense. To love one is to hate the other. To root for Notre Dame is to wish for the utter and total destruction of Southern Cal in every game they play. Okay, it just goes hand in hand. That's why people ask me, if your son decided to go to Southern Cal, what would you do? And I have always responded, listen, my kids have free will. They can decide what they want to do in their lives. Just like we decide with our own free will if we're going to follow God. And if my son decides he wants to go to USC or Michigan, then he is essentially deciding that he does not want to have fellowship with the Father. He does not want to have a relationship with the guy that gave him life. And that's up to him. I'm not going to force him to love me, okay? It's his decision. So if he wants Southern Cal, I'm going to tell him, go and don't look back, okay? Or turn your heart back to me. You don't have to go to Notre Dame. Just don't go there. (laughs) You cannot love both God and the world. Let me illustrate it uh, a different way. Um, With this question. Is it possible for a man uh, to be in love with two women at the same time? Yes or no? Well, yeah. The answer is no, of course. And if someone says, yes, it's called polyamory, don't, don't trust that person's opinion on anything because they don't know, they don't know the truth, okay? Uh, they don't know anything, so don't ask them their opinion. Uh, ladies, imagine if you were married, and, and some of you are, okay? So those of you that are married don't have to use your imagination, but let's say you are a married woman, and let's say your husband is having an affair, well, probably, yes. Obviously, in this sense, you're angry, you're, you're heartbroken, and so you confront your husband and you say to him, I thought you loved me. Now imagine if he says to you, honey, I do love you. I, I, I never stopped loving you. The, the thing is, I also love Trixie. I, she's back. <laughs> thing is, I also love Trixie. Don't you see how hard this is for me? I'm in love with two women. What do you think you're going to say? Do you think you're going to say in that moment, oh my gosh, honey, what a dilemma. You're right. This is so hard for you. No, you will not say that. If you're anything like my Italian wife, what you will do is you will pull out a large kitchen knife, point it in your husband's face and say, you better make a choice, buddy, or I will make it for you. You can't love me and her. It's one or the other. Make a decision, or I'll make it for you, and I'll cut you and I'll cut her. (laughs) Word. (laughs) Jesus said in the Gospels, you cannot love both God and money. You cannot serve two masters. 
He said either you'll love the one or hate the other. And though Jesus used money as his illustration there, pretty much anything in the world can be substituted in that sentence. You cannot love both God and the world. It's impossible. If you love one, you hate the other. There's no wiggle room. And that's exactly how John has phrased all of his messages in this book so far. Uh, In verse 6 of chapter 1, he says, If we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In in chapter 1, verse 8, he says, If we have no sin, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Chapter 4, I'm I'm sorry, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5 He says, whoever says, I know him, God, but doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know we are in him. Uh, In verse 9, he says, whoever says he's in the light, but hates his brother, still in darkness. So over and over and over, John has been consistent in his message. He doesn't leave any wiggle room whatsoever. There's no gray area. No struggle of, well, you know, I love one, but I also kind of love this one. He says, no, if you love this one, you hate this one. Full stop. If you love one, you hate the other. So I want you to ask yourself an honest question. Do you believe in God Or do you love God? Do you believe in God? Or do you love God? See, anyone can believe in God. Satan believes in God. But do you love God? And again, I'm not talking about feelings. Feelings come and go. But when you love someone, you're devoted to them. You would do anything for them, even if in a particular moment you don't really like them. Moms, think about your kids in this sense. Sometimes you have wonderful, gushing feelings for your kids. Other times your feelings are like, man, it's a good thing CPS exists, because if they didn't, I would leave this kid out in the cold. This little miscreant is about to get smacked. That's what your emotions are saying. But even in that moment, you would lay down your life for that kid without hesitation. Without question, you would lay your life down. Why? Because you love them. So do you love God? See, being a Christian is is about so much more than just believing the right things. It's about more than just following commands or pledging your allegiance to God. And certainly those things have a place. Certainly those things play a role. But fundamentally, at the root of our faith is a love for God because he first loved us. And out of that love grows obedience, faithfulness, allegiance, truth, Paul said, these three things remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So do you love God? Because if you don't, do you even know him? There's one final point. John tells us in this passage that when we love God instead of loving the world, Not only will will that result in a faithfulness of affection, it will also result in an urgency of mission. Not only a faithfulness of affection, but an urgency of mission. So this is point number four. Love for God turns us into full-time rescuers. Look once again at verse 17. The world is passing away along with its desires, but... Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Focusing specifically on those words, whoever does the will of God. Now, up to this point, John has been exclusively using the language of love. 
exclusively using the language of affection. Do not love the world, because if you do, the love of the Father is not in you. And remember, we said that at the beginning, he specifically didn't start with, do not do the things of the world. He started with, do not love the world. So now, why here at the end does he switch to this language of doing? Do the will of God. Because when we love God, it will cause us to do the things that he desires for us to do. Affection will grow fruit of action. And specific to this context, chief among those actions in our duty is to be ambassadors of the gospel to a dying world. Uh, when Captain Rostrin received the SOS distress signal from the Titanic, he initially thought that Harold Cottam, the, the wireless communications specialist, was wrong. His first thought was, are you sure? He asked him, are you sure this SOS is coming from the Titanic? Because if you recall, in those days before it happened, the Titanic was hailed as being unsinkable. It was, uh, it had safety features that were so advanced that the ship's owners boasted that it was immune to every kind of maritime danger. Nothing can sink this ship, is literally what they said. And it lasted less than a week. Kind of awkward. Kind of reminds us of what that thing about uh, pride comes before destruction but because of this propaganda surrounding the Titanic, that it's unsinkable, Captain Rostron, as you can imagine, would have been very surprised to hear that the Titanic, of all ships, was sending out an SOS. Now, in addition to that, Captain Rostron also had very legitimate concerns for his own ship to consider. He had his own passengers and his own agenda, and he was nowhere near the Titanic. And the path to get to the Titanic, not a safe one. So it would be taking a tremendous risk to his career, to the safety of everyone on board, if things didn't go well. And can you imagine if the wireless guy caught him was wrong? <laughs> they go all this way and find out that it was a mistake? That would have been career suicide. But without hesitation, he jumps into action. He did what his position and his convictions called him to do. In that moment, his primary job became to captain a rescue boat. This is what God has called us to do. To view our primary job in this life as gospel ambassadors to people who are sinking with this ship called the world. But again, to do this requires focused affection. Because one of the biggest things that stops us from this mission is that we keep getting caught up in the things and the desires of this world. But isn't it so silly knowing what we know? Imagine how silly it would be if the Carpathia shows up to the wreckage of the Titanic and some of its crew members are sent aboard. Imagine you're one of those crew members from the Carpathia that's sent aboard the Titanic to rescue passengers before the boat sank. Imagine you had decided to just stay on board. Imagine you walk onto the Titanic and you walk over to the famous grand staircase and you see the marble floors, and you see that the orchestra is still playing. You see this incredible, opulent chandelier. Everything is so beautiful. And then a lovely passenger comes over to you and says, Hey, would you like to stay for a drink? There are many five-star establishments where we could go. Wouldn't it be crazy if you said yes? Any rational person in that scenario would be like, no, you need to come with me. This ship is sinking. You are going to die. Only a fool would sink. Ah, well, one drink couldn't hurt. 
I'll stick around for a few minutes. No harm. Even crazier, if they decided to change out of their rescue gear, put on a Hawaiian short, uh, shirt and board shorts and say, you know what, I'm just going to take up residence in one of these cabins because you know what, they're so nice. But isn't that exactly what we do? Every single day when we start to love the things of this world, when the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life take hold of us and suddenly we forget that we're supposed to be on a rescue mission. We start acting like this is our home. We start acting like true happiness can be found in things that we know are passing away. When we're in our right minds, we, we know that the ship is sinking. We know that these things are vain and empty. But in the moment, when we're presented with something that seems so pleasurable, it's so easy for us to say, eh, maybe it won't hurt if I just enjoy this for a moment. My friends, I, I urge you to examine your affection. Because the only thing that will save us The only thing that will enable us to be a part of the rescue mission for others is to have a firmly set love for the Father instead of the world. So, what decisions will you make to shape those desires? Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you love us. Lord, that there's nothing we could do to earn that kind of love. But yet, you lavish it upon us. Lord, you are so good, you are so faithful, so kind, and so worthy of worship. So God, I pray that you would call our hearts to love you back. Lord, that we wouldn't get so caught up in the shiny trinkets of this world fool's gold. God, I pray that you would help us to weigh the cost, to think clearly, that you would help us to set our hearts on you. God, I pray as we um, sing this closing song, Lord, that in these moments you would help us to reflect on what your spirit has taught us, that if there are decisions that need to be made, Lord, that we'd have the confidence to make those decisions. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, Daryl will close, uh, play our closing song. And if you want to pray, um, talk about anything, I'm going to be down here at the front. Just tap me on the shoulder, um, and, and we'll chat about whatever needs to be said. Daryl, if you would.